Hey gang, I have a great conversation for you today with Caitlin Tiffany, who is the author of the new book, Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet As We Know It. And I have a special request that is appropriate given the topic, as Caitlin and I talk about online life leads people to behave in strange ways. And one of those ways is that sometimes when people see my tweets and don't like them, they see the link in my bio to the Apple podcast page for this show and they leave a one-star review. And honestly, I don't think I deserve as many one-star reviews as I currently have. So if you want to fight back against the haters, you can go right now to Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use and give the show a five-star rating and a positive review. Okay, enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Caitlin Tiffany. Caitlin, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, my name's Caitlin. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic. I write about internet culture. Uh, and you are also, um, most importantly for the purposes of this conversation, the author of a new book entitled Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It. Um, so congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, it yeah, it just came it's, out. It's fun to, I, I didn't intentionally manipulate you into being the one who had to say the title, but maybe subconsciously <laughs> I did because it's so long. Um, and I feel kind of embarrassed reciting the whole thing, but yeah. <laughs> yes, it is a mouthful. And I'll even say it again. Uh, everything I need, I get from you. <laughs> Subtitle, how fangirls created the internet as we know it. Um, I really enjoyed this book. It's one of the best books I've ever read about the internet. And yeah, it just, there were, there were so many interesting observations in it. And you really, you know, you write about the internet as someone who is sort of a, a native to this strange place. And so is there a, 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 you know, a one or two line summary of the book that you would give to, um, to someone who has no idea what it's about? Yeah, I guess. Oh, I'm so, I'm so bad at elevator pitches. I, um, it's, it's like a total slog for me to get any stories approved because I just ramble. But, um, anyway, I, I think the way I was thinking of this book was that it would be sort of an explainer on how fandom became this kind of dominant language of the internet and therefore our culture and political discourse, but it would be sort of through the lens of my own experience as a One Direction fan. Um, so it could be about these macro level things, but also about the sort of like more intimate personal aspects of fandom, which are the ones that I think by the end of the book come off as sort of the positive redeeming qualities of fandom um, that sort of justify the maybe, um, I don't know, amoral uh, <laughs> aspects of fandom at scale. So the, the book is sort of cultural history, social commentary on what the internet is like now, but also is about the band One Direction, which we will explain for people who don't know what that is. And I'm sure there's still still some of them. And I was sort of <laughs> one before I read this. I all had the vaguest idea of who One Direction was. And also there's some personal memoiristic aspects of the book as well. So it's a really interesting combination. And it yeah, it's extremely readable. I really enjoyed it. So okay, so for someone who had ne who has never heard of One Direction, could you give a little background on who they were, are, what yeah. they will be? Yeah. So like around this 
same, pretty much at the same time as Justin Bieber was when One Direction was, was getting started. So like the early 2010s, um, and they started as five individual, um, auditioners on the British show, the X factor. And they were kind of like smushed into a super group of like, you know, at the time, sort of like dorky looking <laughs> teens, um yeah Simon Cowell you know love him or hate him he certainly got the eye uh he he's the one who decided they should all kind of work as one thing because not not one of them was individually interesting enough (laughs) um and then from there I think what's what was interesting about them or novel about them was that their early success really depended or at least seemed to depend on like social media support and girls who just really dedicated themselves, mostly girls who dedicated themselves to promoting them and like making them the biggest band in the world or whatever. So um, I like, I kind of position them as like they like the internet's first boy band, like a creation of the internet, even, even though they're in this like tradition of boy bands that goes back for a long time um they were a departure in that they were a lot more chaotic um accessible they were always like tweeting embarrassing photos of each other they just um had this real like proximity to their fandom that made the the fandom be really engaged in ways that were super interesting and creative and fruitful and sometimes um, scary. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so a a reader who's interested in this book does not need to know anything about One Direction because you explain plenty and you don't need to have an interest in, you know, early aughts pop music either um, because I, that's where, where I was coming from. And um, I, yeah. So I was trying to remember like what I knew about One Direction before this. And I sort of remembered that, yeah, their stuff would trend on Twitter and sort of the pre, you know, the pre-Trump era, like 2015 before, like a more innocent period on Twitter. And I remember like, I sort of knew there was a guy named Harry Styles and that just from like seeing the trending topics. Then there was a guy who I thought his name was Zion, but actually his name is Zane (laughs) um, because it's spelled like Z-A-Y-N. And and that was about all I knew. And so I, I really don't pay that much attention to like contemporary pop music at all and sort of you know boy band that seemed to me aimed at like the audience was teenage girls you know i would have no interest in this but like their the online fandom was such that they um would make their presence known by sort of you know taking advantage of the the way various like social media networks were set up mm-hmm. um when did you first encounter one direction and what got you interested in them so I talk about it a bit in the book, but um, I was in college when I became a One Direction fan. It was my freshman year of college. I was like very poorly suited to the college environment. Um, <laughs> I went to a super tiny high school um, and then a really, really big college with like a pretty extreme like Greek life uh, social scene, um, which didn't make sense for me at all. And I just kind of felt like a loser all the time. I was just like really bored. Um, and that was really the first time in my life that I spent a lot of time on the internet. Before that, I had had a pretty like all American childhood of, <laughs> uh-huh. of, of just like working at the mall and like playing sports. And I was not an internet kid at all. Um, so 
partly it was because I was just on Tumblr all the time for the first time ever. And it was one of those subcultures that like once you stumble across it, it was just so the energy seemed so like infectious that I was really intrigued by it. And um, I guess I'm telling things out of order kind of. The the real first time I was exposed to One Direction was when I was home for the summer and went to see the documentary about them with my little sisters, just kind of being like, yeah, yeah, whatever, like I'll go along. I love movie theater popcorn and air conditioning, so who cares? Um, <laughs> and at first I was like, I cannot tell these boys apart. Like they are so generic. Um, and by the end, it's not like I was like, oh my God, I love One Direction now, but I was definitely intrigued by them and I also described in the book there's like a scene in that movie where they're all like sitting around a campfire it's actually kind of haunting now because they're talking about how they're always going to be friends whenever what if and when what's happening to them and like they'll be in each other's lives forever and that's like clearly not been the case Mm -hmm. so it's kind of sad to watch now but but in that segment they're talking about like you know what's do I want basically like my legacy to be? And one of them says like, oh, I hope that a mom just tells her daughter about, you know, the band that was cool when she was young and how terrible they were at dancing or whatever. And I just found that really moving at that time. I think just because I was like going through a rough transitional period um, of like trying to grow up. And so the like nostalgia of that was probably appealing to me. I'm also was like, horrible at interacting with boys I was like really craving of approval from men that I was not receiving (laughs) so I think I was also just kind of like wow that that boy like really cares about women in the abstract how beautiful um (laughs) even though like I did not become a Louis Tomlinson uh Louis Tomlinson Tomlinson is the one who said it I did not become a Louis girl but yeah, I don't know. There was something about them that really just like grabbed me at that moment. And then, and as I said later, like Tumblr is, I think um, I've described it before as like an identity accelerant. I feel like um, you go on Tumblr, there's so many different things you can come across and it's so easy. Like if something grabs your attention to just like completely immerse yourself in it. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I was even a little bit interested in One Direction, I could go on Tumblr and just get like so excited by how excited everyone else was. Um, and there was just this like wealth of creativity and like in jokes around them um, that really helped me deal with my boredom at that time. And also because my younger sisters were into One Direction and because one of my friends from high school was into into One Direction, it became something that I could talk to them about that was like fun and interesting rather than just, you know, saying over and over, oh my God, I hate my life. I hate school, blah, 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 (laughs) you know? (laughs) Uh Okay. So, so I was never on Tumblr and I only sort of became aware of them through like Twitter stuff, but that was, yeah, but Tumblr was really where the action was when it came to One Direction fandom yeah, and, 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 sort of, uh, and other <laughs> fandoms in general and, you know, younger teenagers and post-teenagers in the early on. So what, what was it about Tumblr during that period that, like, made it the place where fandoms, like, came together and, and did their thing? Um, I think Tumblr had some pretty key, like, structural features for fandom. And then it was also kind of an accident of timing. Um, I talk about this in the book, but uh, there had been some prominent like fan fiction platforms that had just 
introduced new content guidelines that banned popular categories of fanfic, including like real person. I mean, especially including real person fan fiction. So basically anything you would be writing about a celebrity. Um, so there was a lot of fans who were already looking for a new home on the internet. And then when Tumblr emerged, uh, it was a great place for them because at the time it was pretty novel that it offered so many different kinds of, and it still is kind of um, a differentiator that it offers so many different post formats um, that people could do long text posts and they could also, um, you know, do GIF sets, uh, which are a like key aesthetic category of the internet that was invented on Tumblr, like GIF sets were not a mainstream form of communication mm -hmm. before Tumblr, which is, um, I think people well, tend to forget about. What's the difference about. between a GIF and a GIF set? So like a GIF set would be like a series of GIFs like arranged in some kind of meaningful way to like show a sequence of events or, mm -hmm. or like a pattern or something. So like on, like on Twitter, you can't really, do, you can't, you couldn't do that until like a, a couple of years ago and you couldn't even upload GIFs to GIFs were limited to like a super small file size on Twitter, even until like, I don't know, 2017, when I was a social media manager, literally half my job was making the GIFs smaller. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I think there there was that, like the kind of basic features of the site. And then just the fact that it was um, so secluded um, away from the rest of the internet and because it emphasized sort of identity and customization of your own page, um, collecting and curating images and incorporating them into your own space made sense with this sort of like stockpiling tradition of fandom. And then Tumblr's tagging feature is also really special um, because it's one of the few tagging features that allows people to write, you can write spaces uh, in between words so people could write out <laughs> entire sentences. Which is such a sim weird, simple thing. And like, yeah, Twitter still doesn't have that ability. Yeah, if you want to do like add a sentence or something or a phrase to a tag, it has to all run together. Yeah. One, yeah, word sort of thing. Yeah, I think like the culture of tagging was just so different from what it ever was on Twitter or Instagram. Like fans would use it as sort of a secondary place to riff and make jokes, but also like Tumblr. Um, I think a lot of people in fandom are really invested in in archiving their fandom and making their blogs like very meticulous and searchable. So you'll see on Tumblr, like if you can go through people's archives, like sorted by tags and um, a lot of them will be, you know, have like a hundred different tags with all of their posts throughout the years about One Direction and they're, they're like organized so that they're completely visible, which isn't something it would really make sense to do with your, with your tweets. But I think, um, yeah, the combination of the, of the, features and then sort of this like secluded this feeling of seclusion and um anonymous conversation where everybody was coming together only based on their shared interests really contributed to it mm -hmm. so the subtitle is how fangirls created the internet as we know it um how do you define fangirl ken is is a fangirl necessarily uh under 18 a does it have to be female um can anyone be a fangirl uh, yeah, I mean, I think like, at the beginning of the book, I'm talking about sort of the trope of the fangirl, which is like in the popular imagination, 
like a young like teenage girl um screaming hysterically mm-hmm. um but throughout the book I'm also talking about women who are older or fans who are not women or um fans who are people of color who are not usually represented in this like image you have of what a one direction fangirl is it's usually really conflated with this like white suburban teenager so i i mean obviously like the feelings of fandom the like feeling of i guess organizing your life or your identity in some way around this like object of your affection is something that anybody can experience but part of the goal of the book was to I guess um illustrate how complex that is and I I started with the trope to illustrate that that trope was insufficient and then kind of went out from there Mm -hmm. yeah so you go into sort of like the history of being a fan in general and you know modern fans in the modern sense and like often fandom that is primarily associated with women is treated as less serious and you know not worthy of respect or study and so like when the Beatles first came to America the most visible fans were teenage girls screaming And that caused like a lot of adult, you know, white male critics at the time to sort of be like, well, this is, you know, this is a joke. This is just garbage for kids. And then it turned out that like the Beatles are still the most successful, you know, by some measures, I guess, popular music act of all time. And Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to think about like there's multiple parallels between One Direction and the Beatles. They're, you know, mainly British. I guess one, one is Irish. Um, and f- five versus four, the musicians, obviously, they like were popular first in the UK and then came to America and became superstars. Um, does it end there? Do you see are there other ways that comparing them makes sense or does it make sense? Yeah. Um, well, so I was watching, um, I can't remember the names of anybody involved because they're all like British newscasters. <laughs> I was watching a panel from some British news program that was from around the time that One Direction was at their peak where they were talking about comparing them to the Beatles. And one of the men on the panel was saying like, well, they're just as famous as the Beatles. But I think the difference is that like the Beatles had a cultural impact and One Direction not having a cultural impact, which I thought was just like a, utterly ridiculous statement and also that is kind of what people thought about the Beatles at the time too was that you know if they were having any kind of cultural impact it was like basically like voodoo like it was a lot of it was kind of like racially tinged it was part of the like fear of rock and roll in general Mm -hmm. and um there was this just this assumption that like if something was super popular amongst young women, then it must kind of inherently be pointless. Right. Um, and you know, like I I get sort of like torn talking about these things because like I'm also a person who like appreciates uh art and thinks it's worthy of seriousness and don't want to start arguing that One Direction's like an amazing historically significant musical act um, that created musical masterpieces because I don't think that's the case but I I just think people um, in both situations 
like lost out on an opportunity to observe some really interesting cultural phenomena because they just weren't invested in asking any questions like that was really notable to me in a lot of the early coverage of the of Beatlemania was that like all of these reports which are very colorful and a lot of them written in quite an engaging way um very few of them bothered to stop and ask a single one of these women like what they were thinking or like why they were doing what they were doing which just seems like such an utter failure of journalism and like a really sad um like deficit of curiosity because basically anybody that you ask about why they're doing something like screaming in a public place is gonna have like a pretty interesting and specific answer just because like <laughs> most people have interesting and specific lives mm -hmm. yeah i you take a group seriously that has often been not taken seriously and you know more people are paying attention to fans in general now but yeah just like it's sort of like things that men were fans of you know predominantly like star trek and star wars or something sort of got taken seriously by mainstream or like upper middle brow culture like earlier than things that young women were were fans of mm -hmm. um even though sort of they're not necessarily like one what is not necessarily deeper or more complex than the other um yeah well i think there is still i think the like nerd stigma was persistent for a pretty long time or still kind of is i mean there are, i guess star wars and those properties like were judged in different ways than fangirl but i guess i guess i i think all kinds of fandom can be subject to that sort of like stigma of like you've crossed over a line of caring too much about this and, like mm -hmm. you live in a fantasy maybe the one that escapes judgment the most often is like sports fandom which is right you know <laughs> yeah yeah that you know we're supposed to take sports extremely seriously and but it, why why is that any more or less important in its essence than pop music or you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something mm -hmm. else. Um, so one other thing I was thinking about, okay, so like I said, I knew almost nothing about One Direction before I read this and then got more interested in in them as I read. And I was asking a friend, like, what is their most famous song? Because I don't, I don't really know any of their songs. And I can't remember which one she said, but it's <laughs> maybe it was like their first big hit. It's like them playing on the beach in the music video. Yeah, yeah. What Makes You Beautiful? Yes. And I listened to it or, and I watched the video and, and listened to it. And I was like, this sounds vaguely familiar, but you know, I, if someone just played this for me, I'm not sure. Like I probably wouldn't have been able to place it. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm the opposite of the audience for this type of music. But if you, if you go back to the comparison of the Beatles and then like how omnipresent their music became versus the, the one direction music, like it does seem like it was more of a subculture hothouse at least in terms of the music and how the music spread versus some other other creative acts from the past that we could compare them to like Backstreet Boys are in sync or something or new kids on the block or the uh, British invasion bands. D yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think maybe partly because they would have been at the beginning of the streaming era. Like a lot of 
fans that I interviewed for the book talked about becoming One Direction fans because they ended up um, like in a YouTube recommendation rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe that has to do with like kind of the end of the monoculture or whatever. Um, Like we have so many huge pop stars now. And that's like part of why Who Do You Stand is like (laughs) a signifier of identities because there's always many choices of who to stand at this time. Right. And for people who don't know what stand means, could you give a definition of that term? Oh, yeah. I feel like this is a word that I only learned from, I learned from context on Twitter and then only later was like, oh, I didn't realize that there was some debate over the origins of this term. Um, But I thought originally, and I think some people still use it this way, that it was a portmanteau of stalker and fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the, I think, other like more commonly embraced definition is that it's a reference to like the Eminem song about an obsessive fan named Stan. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't like totally think that makes sense because I don't feel like the people who started using it first would have been listening to Eminem, but but whatever. <laughs> right. And that, that's for the historians to decide. <laughs> and that's I that song came out when I was in high school, like 1999 or so. Mm-hmm. And probably didn't enter popular usage in its modern form until at least a decade later or more. So yeah, the the etymology may be lost at the same times, but it's Stan, it can be both a noun describing the person who's a super fan or a verb, I think. It's so like yeah. I stay I stan I stan Harry or I stan uh Zane. Um okay, so well stepping back a little bit, how did you decide that like, how did the book come together in your mind or as you were writing it such that you combined talking about this one specific band, but as like a lens to look at all sorts of ways that internet culture has changed over the past 10 years or so? Um, well, originally I wanted to, I knew I wanted to do a book about fandom and the internet, but originally I thought I would do sort of like, um, like a collection of essays that was about different fandoms and my agent kind of I would say steered but more like shoved me away from that idea and and was sort of like no I think this makes more sense to do like um you know through whatever you have personal experience of which I Mm -hmm. think was ultimately totally the right call because like internet fandom is such a broad category there's just like it would have been impossible to pick like a representative collection of fandoms to talk about because there's just like um I mean even in writing this book I was like there's so many different pop music fandoms that I think are important that I need to read about so that I can like understand this fandom and if I had tried to introduce also like I don't know anime sports web comics marvel whatever like i would have just like gone on forever and i would have um not gotten anywhere so (laughs) and and i think also like some of the stuff about the personal meaning of fandom like sounds a little bit abstract and also a little bit like i don't know mystical and and, uh like woo woo (laughs) if it's Mm -hmm. not like presented within the the context of like a granular like life story um (laughs) so that was part of the reason too right so when did you decide to include some memoir memoiristic aspects to it was that part of the plan from the beginning 
Yeah. Um, it was definitely part of the plan from the beginning. I think it was, um, it was weird to me how hard that stuff was to write because I'm like somebody who's written about myself on the internet for a long time. Um, just like in passing in, in stuff I was writing for work. And then I also have like a newsletter with my friend Lizzie, which is, which is basically just like diaristic about our lives. Um, and it was just, but it was like, it was so much weirder to be sort of, it felt a little bit self-aggrandizing <laughs> to like insert personal narrative <laughs> into this like sort of sweeping cultural analysis that I wanted to do. And um, I found it so much harder to think about like saying something embarrassing about my life in book form, e even though I do know intellectually that like far fewer people are going to buy and read this book than would possibly come across something on the internet. Um, I don't know. It was like, it started off like a pretty minor part of the book. And then I was real, I realized during the editing process that it read as pretty dishonest and like hmm. needed to be more specific. So that's why I added some of the more um, like, I don't know, undignified information. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, it works. And there's parts of the book that are moving where you're talking about your own life. And so it's a, interesting combination and sort of new journalism esque or something, but, or just, you know, taking from the confessional nature of online writing, but I think it, I think it works really well. Um, so, it, you know, it's funny that you were saying like, you know, you couldn't narrow down, you know, if you were to pick 10 fandoms or something, there would be hundreds left. Like, well, how do you think, <laughs> how would you evaluate, evaluate the claim that like all of modern life is now fandom? And the fandom tendencies have infected everything. And the, the, the meeting of social media and fan tendencies is like hypercharged and maybe made worse a lot of modern life. Like, like what is MAGA aside from like Trump, like stands? Yeah. And, and they're so, and people are so personally identified with Trump, the person and, and just the sort of like tribalism that, um, you know, everything in contemporary America is one side versus the other. And it seems like an online flame war of, you know, one direction fans fighting with Justin Bieber fans or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think the, the internet and fandom are sort of like, a, maybe like a little bit of a chicken and eggs type situation. Cause I, I think a lot of what, a lot of the way that I understand like modern life seems driven by the architecture of social platforms. Like I think, you know, we've really been steered to think constantly about what signifiers and um, like symbols and products and um, types of language we want to collect and assimilate into our identity. Um, and you see people bickering over this on Twitter all day long about like, <laughs> um, you know, what thing did you say about the, the best pizza in Chicago that was so wrong and I need to correct it, you know? Um, like, I think that's a symptom of social media, but it is fandom is really well suited to that kind of um debate and that kind of projection of self that like relies on you know using things from from the media or from popular culture and sort of cobbling together an identity um and then 
yeah, I think because fandom has been such a dominant presence on social media platforms, the kind of emotional balance of fandom speak, um, the attention getting strategies of fans, the like responses to criticism that fans typically make, um, those are things that have infected a lot of other kinds of discourse. And as you mentioned, especially in political discourse, I think it's like particularly apparent um, the way that, you know, people will turn an Elizabeth Warren quote into like a t-shirt and a tote bag and a set of earrings and a champagne flute to sell on Etsy or, um, <laughs> you know, the way that you can see like, you can see like Republican senators like Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz like are very aware of their social media followings and you can see them when they're speaking in congressional hearings like really trying to get that soundbite of owning the libs that's going to go viral on Twitter um, or, you know, whatever on the weird right wing alternative Twitters. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like, I, I think like once you start looking for it, you start to see it everywhere. There's just this like constant toggling between like adoration and vitriol. And then there's also just like constantly sorting and like refining the groups more and more like who belongs where based on what they like and like um, it just feels like we're constantly creating these like never ending documentations um, of self, like through the things that, that we've collected as, um, you know, whatever the objects of our fandom, be that uh, a pop star or a, a brand or, a, you know, fashion aesthetic or whatever. Right. And I'm thinking of, you know, it doesn't start here in politics, but like the 2016 primary between Bernie and Hillary and how that like divided people <laughs> into, yeah, totally. you know, two groups and those identifications, like calling people Bernie bro, like that persisted after the election. And now like a, there's a faction of online supporters of Kamala Harris. Yeah. Who are, are called they the, are wild. The K hive, which is derived from, well, is it? <laughs> I I've got messes up with the best. Is it the Beehive or the Bayhive? That's the that's Beyonce Beyonce's um, fandom. I think it's Bayhive. I think. Uh, I don't know. Well, yeah. okay. Either one. It now seems like... now I have a seed of doubt, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's Bayhive. Okay. The they see. I mean, every you know every fandom has like people who take it really to the extreme, but like the Kamala stands. Um, like <laughs> multiple like mainstream reporters have said that they're like the most vicious people <laughs> they've ever encountered online. If someone yeah. writes a negative article about Harris, like the, you know, they're getting like death threats in their DMS and it does. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's the people who are obsessed with the pop star, but it's just the, you know, it's a political analog, but it's not like these people are like, super into you know her like health reform plan or something it's like right. it's like some embodiment of her yeah and so it seems in politics it seems like very bad and, and you know like it, it didn't start in 2016 like obama had a sort of like cult of personality around him as well and was a very charismatic figure but yeah once i don't know I, yeah just as he said online the way online works encourages people to identify their persona with things they like and so they make their avatar if they're really into bernie they make their avatar on twitter a bernie icon 
and then that's sort of like who they are and people can see that and they're like yes that's the team I'm I'm on or that's the team I hate right yeah um now that you're saying this like the the Kamala hive I feel like somebody needs to write like 8,000 words about it I because I don't really get it I don't get why she would have such a vicious seemingly youthful fan base but uh like I'm not sure they're youthful, honestly, but they do seem vicious. I, I, it seems strange to me also. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's weird stuff. Um, She's like not a charismatic figure. I'm saying this and now I'm going to get death threats. But like, yeah, you better be careful what you, what you say about her. Um, okay. So what, so one part, <laughs> so, so getting back to the book, one part that I found really fascinating was Larry Larry Stylison? Is that how you would say it? Stylison. Yeah, Stylison. Yeah. Okay. Could you explain what this means and why it's sort of like yeah tore, tore the Wonder Direction fandom <laughs> in half? I know it's very dramatic. There's two chapters. Um, but <laughs> so Larry Stylison started out as the ship name, so like imaginary romantic pairing between Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson to members of the band um people so, so just so shipping like comes from the fan fiction world and like yeah. in the 60s people wrote fanfics about how like kirk and spock were in a romantic relationship and it like evolved from there and like every seemingly every fandom that's around a fictional property has like people writing fan fiction in which like two men who are presented as straight in the in the work are, are like actually in love with each other and that became like its own genre and it doesn't always have to be two men but it's like you know working out a a imaginary relationship between two characters and then this what you mentioned previously with like the fan fiction sites banning the real person fanfic like so yeah this plays into it and like sort of fiction and reality start getting intertwined in bizarre ways yeah yeah so it started out as like um as just fan fiction or um, at the beginning of the band, like people did hypothesize like, oh, look, they're flirting with each other um, because they were kind of, I mean, if you look at the gifs, like they're just like young boys, like goofing around and it does have sort of like a sweet, um, I don't know, connotation to it. And people were having fun with the speculation, which like I want to emphasize is like totally harmless um, and like was a really exciting and fun and creative opportunity for people for a long time um but then it sort of soured because it took on this like conspiratorial tone of like the management of one direction is forcing them to be closeted therefore like any woman that we see in their orbit is like in on the scheme manipulative gold digger liar etc 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 using them for their money to get plastic surgery and and all of this stuff there was just like a ton and ton a ton of misogyny and then just like vicious infighting within the fandom over it because you know anybody who questioned the, the rationality of the of the Larry Stylins and diehards would be called homophobic um there was just a lot of I think like wielding of of like social justice trump cards kind of back and forth because of the <laughs> spirit of tumblr at the time um and then eventually like i think like the breaking point um where it really becomes like a schism in the fandom that like couldn't 
couldn't be overcome was when um, a bunch of people who believed in in Larry decided that Lou Tomlinson's baby was not real, was like a a doll, or um, <laughs> or later a hired actor, or um, you know various explanations emerged over time, but. That whole affair was called Babygate, and they went about trying to prove that the baby was fake. There's still people to this day that believe that um, there was actually some chatter on Tumblr recently about how, um, you know, Babygate would come to an end and the true paternity of Freddie Tomlinson <laughs> would would be, um, you know, the day that my book was released so that um, it would make everything in my book inaccurate. Oh, <laughs> um, wow. Okay, so you you yourself <laughs> have gotten dragged into this conspiracy world. Yeah, totally. That's wild. Um, yeah. So because I like I think something that like something that surprised me when I was researching those chapters was um, how much like those conspiracy theories were really the the product of only like a pretty small handful of people within the fandom, most of whom were adults the whole time. Um, and they really sort of like influenced and I don't think it's unfair to say manipulated a lot of younger fans, um, into participating in these things. And, um, they really, I don't know. I mean, they participated in what we would call media manipulation, like, um, editing things to appear a certain way, um, disseminating half facts, like claiming authority on things they didn't really have authority on. Um, and you know, in this secluded space of Tumblr, which is, you know, both a positive and also a, a, a way where things like a location for things to fester. So, <laughs> yeah. So I think like it was, it like, I don't think it's representative of fandom. It's certainly not representative of what like shipping or fic culture always is, but it's something that's happened in other fandoms too. And I think it's because usually there are these like small groups of fans in the fandom who like see an opportunity to um, like be the special fans who have noticed something that no one else has noticed and they can kind of like create a little fiefdom around that. Right. So, yeah, I found this part of the book really fascinating. And, you know, the parallels between this and other conspiracy theorizing that has sort of taken over the country over the past couple of years are, you know, pretty obvious. And I so I remember like after like right after the January 6th riot or whatever you want to call it, I tweeted something like, I sort of understand the appeal of QAnon because I got really into Lost and would like read Lost theories and message boards online and like there's just sort of something about i mean there's a natural human instinct towards like mysteries and solving mysteries and decoding things and, and seeing significance and signs and symbols but like the like hothouse atmosphere of an online community really hypercharges that mm -hmm. and you just see it everywhere um of people thinking so some of the larry stuff would be like the, the management doesn't want their love to be open so they have to keep it a secret but they're sending secrets they're sending signals through various numbers that they might say or include in a song or like the time they post something online and so the, it gets into the sort of like numerology uh, there's some term related to like the hebrew bible like debauchery or something of like interpreting numbers in a way to find their hidden significance so like there's something about online life that makes that encourages this and turns people who maybe would not have gotten into this sort of thing into like 
decoders of reality looking for secret signs and symbols. And like that's QAnon. It was all about Trump said a specific word. He said like the word storm. Like, and that had like this occult meaning within QAnon. And that proved to the QAnon believers that like, oh, he's like, he's guiding this whole thing. And it's just like insane. It's like this, you know, so the Larry part is sort of like, farcical and then all the people who got convinced by QAnon and then you know stormed the capital like this is like tragic and but still farcical and absurd i i don't know it's it seems really really messed up um and i don't know if there's a way out of it because it just seems to be something the the way social media works encourage yeah. encourages this well i guess um I think like what's disturbing and what's similar about them is that it's possible on the internet to live in your own like chosen just like information environment um where with like whichever reality you've chosen is the is the true one and the one that everyone around you is focused on but at the same time like I people do come out of QAnon um and people also came out of Larry I mean I don't love to compare the two really but like um like within fandom there are fans who are super aware of these patterns and very critical of them and have written super interesting um pieces of writing on tumblr kind of dissecting why these things happen over and over um and i think like people do like if you you do have to like want to stay immersed in these in these conspiracy theories in order to stay immersed like the like I mentioned the kind of influencers within the Larry Stylinson fandom who sort of deliberately controlled the information that was getting onto people's tumblr feeds but like that has its limits obviously right like <laughs> you do look at things other than the tumblr feed and the same thing with <laughs> QAnon people like I I think like it it's not as it's not as if they were literally born yesterday, you know. Like they <laughs> they no, do I, understand yeah. on some level, like how things work. But uh, like, okay, they weren't. It wasn't like a sorcerer, you know, um, put a magic spell on them, yeah, and, and they lost their reason. But like, right. people believe this so much that they drove to Washington and stormed the Capitol. So, and you know, oh, right. everyone who who like was sort of vaguely believed QAnon, maybe only one percent believed it enough to you know commit a like yeah. a failed coup but you know it's a big country and you know you get a couple thousand people and you could do something really bad and so yeah and, and like a lot of those people like they were true believers and right it, yeah and just the i don't know it's like when, when you're in just a small group and anywhere it, it can like become extreme if there's like one extreme person or a couple extreme people who want to like push in one direction um, yeah. No, no pun intended. And <laughs> like online, yeah, the person who you know you'll like never win a fight against like someone in a comment section who is like 100 committed because like they will devote their life to proving you wrong. Like they will, they don't have anything else. They are, you know, they will like abandon their family to argue with you. And if you're any sort of normal person, you'll just be like, okay, I need to go like eat dinner or see my loved ones now. And you know, so you give up, and then they they get a feather in their cap. For having like defeated you in an argument yeah i guess like so with QAnon, i feel like people who genuinely literally believe QAnon are like probably mentally unwell like not a psychologist but for the rest of them i guess like 
I feel like after reporting on them for so long, I'm sort of over like the mystique of those guys. And I feel like it's, it's just the very transparent cover that they are using because they are like white supremacists who like don't believe in a multiracial democracy. So like when they, when you're storming the Capitol, like maybe it feels better to say it's because of QAnon than because you're like a, like, frothing rabid race <laughs> but you know okay that that makes sense but at the same time like most people think that whatever they're doing is sort of like the good thing yeah like both for them and in some larger sense good like yeah. like there aren't a lot of people who are like i'm gonna go do something bad and like i know it's bad um like the mind is able to justify you know your actions or beliefs after the fact and so i think the people who stormed the capital mostly were like yeah, this is great. We're going to do something great and we're going to save the country. Like, I think yeah. people generally believe that and they believed it because they fell into this weird online <laughs> subculture. Yeah, but they're going to save it from people who aren't white is what they're going to save it from. Right. I mean, I'm sure plenty of them are racist, but they probably were not. It wasn't like, I don't think it was like, okay, I'm going to the Klan rally now. It was like, I'm going to save the country. And I don't think so it is probably directly, but like there was a, I, a lot of them had a, like a racist belief underlying that, but like there were non-white people <laughs> there as well. Like it, this sure plenty of Americans fell into this insanity, um, and it wasn't all just like yeah, like a, a bunch of racists. It was uh, seemingly some of these people like were apolitical people who like encountered this stuff and it and somehow it appealed to them, and people who are like disaffected from the system in general. Are more likely to believe in some sort of conspira conspiratorial hand like guiding things yeah um yeah i don't know so i reading the book i sort of felt like there was a sort of narrative progression where in the earlier part of the book you're sort of like celebrating all the really like funny inventive clever things that one direction fans are doing and that reminds me of like you know the circa 2010 internet where it's like oh this is so great like we're coming together we're creating things and then there's like a sort of movement towards a darker time as like American life and online life in tandem have become darker as well. Yeah. Is yeah. That, would you agree with that? No, definitely. I mean, I started working on the internet at the like sort of, I don't know, middle of Gamergate. Um, and mm -hmm. then like my first, I was a social media manager when I started working. And then like when I became a reporter was, um, leading up to the 2016 election when it was that was when Hillary Clinton was like explaining what Pepe the Frog is or whatever and um, people were so curious about <laughs> like the alt-right and, mm -hmm. and incels and like all of these like dark internet subcultures that led to you know like mass shooting manifestos and things like that and it was like the first time I feel like people were really or like mainstream journalists were really trying to like reckon with the offline effects of of internet culture um and some of that did become a little bit like histrionic or hysterical at times i think um but it was also like a really necessary recalibration um and then and then yeah like some of the darker elements of fandom like really mapped to onto those same trends pretty well like fandom is also very good at harassment and like I said like very good at conspiracy thinking and like and media manipulation and like all these things that that we associate with like the those darker tides 
right i mean yeah i mean like gamergate was like fan not a fandom exactly but sort of like fan dynamics yeah 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 definitely like directed in like extremely negative ways um okay we've got a little bit long and there's stuff we haven't discussed but i i really you know recommend this book to anyone who spends any time online which is probably a lot of people listening to this um and yeah you don't need to be a fan of one direction to enjoy this book um have you gotten any feedback from one direction fans are, are people so some people think that here <laughs> that your book is part of the anti larry <laughs> conspiracy but maybe yeah. people who are more tethered to reality within the fandom have what have you oh, talked to any yeah. of them who've read the book yeah i have seen like some some nice stuff on tumblr and i've gotten some nice emails um i haven't heard that much from the larry contingency really there was like a little bit of twitter murmuring but i'm a huge advocate of having no twitter notifications so (laughs) (laughs) so a lot of times i don't even see that stuff Mm -hmm. okay that's wise yeah um anything else you want to say about the book or the general topic before we wrap up um i don't think so i think this is a really fun conversation um yeah i hope i hope your listeners are uh end up being nile team nile over team harry if they do decide to dip their toes in (laughs) yeah we did i mean we barely even talked about the individual guys i mean uh, styles himself is having like a huge moment right now oh yeah Um, and so he's like the justin timberlake more or less of the group who's had the most successful like solo career it's um, so terrible that being the successful one is named after Justin Timberlake, one of the most irritating personalities in all of pop roller culture. That's true. Yeah, he seems like a, he seems like a like a bad person, you know. And he's been like the the malefactor in more than one, you know, at least two very prominent like cultural. Um, I don't know what the word is exactly, like controversies or something. <laughs> yeah, like the you know the Janet Jackson and how badly treated Britney Spears, but um. I, yeah, I, like I said, I, I really enjoyed the book and uh, would recommend it to people who have listened to this conversation and got something from it. So the a link to the Amazon page will be, you know, in the podcast notes. And uh, the title again is Everything I Need I Get From You, which is a line from a One Direction song, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's from their last album. Um, so, so check it out. And if people want to follow more of your work in general, where would you direct them? Um, you can locate my byline on the Atlantic, um, or I'm on Twitter at, uh, K-A-I-T underscore Pippity. Um, but you will not, that's, people cannot get your attention on Twitter because you silenced your notifications. Correct. So, <laughs> but you can follow, follow your social media presence there. And I'm on Twitter at A-R-Y-H-E-W. Um, so thank you again, Caitlin. This has been a great conversation and congrats on the book. And thanks to our uh, viewers and listeners, or I guess they're just listeners now. Thanks to our listeners. <laughs> we'll see you again <laughs> next time. All right, great. Thank you so much.